Section 18 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17a Queen's Discrowned. A tram in the open country always seems to me wrong. There is something so brutal, so casual and reckless about the way it tears across fields, bisects roads, shaves cottages and disregards, if it does not actually remove, landmarks. And all the way from Hildesheim, Joseph Leopold and I were thinking, from totally different standpoints, of the great and important town we were about to visit. He was, I knew, dreaming of the splendid, progressive, modern collection of parks and warehouses, theatres, picture palaces and shops, with the old part contemptuously tucked away in a circle of cramping villadom, like a bullet insisted that the doctors do not care to remove, in the midst of the new cells of Hanover's reconstituted modernity. But I was thinking, like the lover of Sinara, quote, of an old passion, unquote, of grim and lonely palaces given over to sightseers, of Herrenhausen and the Leineschloss, and piteous, discrowned queens. There were Sophia Dorothea and Caroline Matilda, the one of England, at least she ought to have been, and the other of Denmark. She only reigned a year. Sophia Dorothea accomplished in the old Leineschloss her dreary tragedy of royal neglect and the fatal consolations of a courtier. Caroline Matilda, the beautiful mismated sister of George the Third, came here weeping a wreck to Herrenhausen to drag out the remainder of her discredited existence in the red brick dower house that was the appanage of her relatives. This lady trailed her misery through cellar too, but Seller was connected only with the innocent, fated youth of Sophia Dorothea, whose lover lies steeped in quicklime under the flags of the Rittersaal in the old palace of the electors of Hanover. And as we breathlessly traversed the flat Prussian plains, Joseph Leopold talked of what interested him more than mere romantic personalities about royal ladies, of the spirit of Germany, of the march of armies over those very fields, of how the smug little dwarfs that we saw dotting the plain were occupied, sacked, rifled and pillaged again and again by Wallenstein and Tilly and their soldiers of fortune. Yet my thoughts obstinately remained with the daughter of the Duke of Zell and Eleonore d'Albreuse, who should have been Queen of England, but died mere Duchess of Alden, and Alden is a little homestead not much bigger or more important than the seat of the humbler sort of country gentleman in the England of the 18th century. The love of an uncrowned queen is a sentiment implanted in the hearts of men. It is an old, old mental attitude, a schwärmerei, as the Germans would call it, that affects both sexes alike. It began, or who shall say it began with Helen of Troy? It ended, and who shall say it has ended, 
with the ex-Empress Eugenie. Nowadays, the record of certain social movements in the daily papers enables us to reconstitute the picture of a graceful mourning figure descending at the Gare du Nord and driving to the Rue de Rivoli, named so by the great one of her family, and taking up her abode in the hotel that overlooks the gardens of her lost palace. On reading this item of fashionable news, do not we, most of us, have a sympathetic tremor? We say, how stoical, or else, how callous. And we incline to the former theory. Physiologists will be likely to suggest as an explanation of the attitude of the wonderful old lady of eighty, some sort of atrophy of the emotional centres. And that is the explanation for me. I hope it happens in the majority of cases of slow-living deaths by imprisonment and dispossession. I cannot imagine, for instance, the high-spirited, selfish schoolgirl that modern historians tell us Mary Stuart was, settling down at Lochleven and Bolton and Fotheringay, supinely allowing her would-be rescuers to go to the scaffold one after another, and believe her to have remained the mercurial, highly sensitised being who landed at the port of Leith one summer's day with Chatelain in her train, and all the airs of France about her. Yet, it would indeed seem that, barring the constant hope of rescue, a slight titillation of interest as regular and as journalier as to us, the morning paper on the breakfast table, Mary Stuart did settle down to her prayers and her rheumatism and the ordering of her household and the teasing of her custodians. And did not Carolina Brunswick, whose coffin under its red velvet pall lies in the crypt in the family cathedral at Hanover, did not Caroline, witty, bitter and unwashed, did not she take refuge in cynicism, the employment of a ready tongue upon the castigation of the many weak points that characterised her vulnerable consort? Once in her hearty prime, she had adopted the tactics of a suffragette, and had demonstrated her wrong on the very spot where that wrong was focused, the Abbey Steps, where her unregenerate husband was managing to get himself crowned without her. And Sophia Dorothea, the wife of George I, she that should have been crowned Queen of England in the fullness of time, soothed herself during her thirty years of durance among the marshes of Alden, with elaborately mounting her not inconsiderable household, paying her bills regularly, seeing her stewards, and furiously driving within the bounds assigned to her by her ex-husband. Exceeding the speed limit was evidently her form of nerve derivative, and seems to have been her foible, her folly in earlier days, when her fate still hung in the balance for Germans do not believe in and are deeply outraged by any signs of unseemly haste. Hers is a story of a coterie, a large and important coterie, of course, but one that, but for some contentious souls in England and an accident of succession, would have remained a coterie, and whose members 
could by no possibility have got mixed up with the royal family of Great Britain. And when it came to the point, the heroine of a German palace scandal could not be Queen of England. It is possible that if Sophia Dorothea had known or realised how near it was to her, if the truculent figure of the old electress had not stood all through her hot and heady years in front of her, a solid block to her hopes of a queenly future, she would have been more careful and would have sacrificed love to ambition. But nothing seemed less likely than that George, disreputable, stockish, drunken, mulish George, should have a crown to give or withhold as a reward for good court behaviour. No, Sophia Dorothea was just the rich heiress and only daughter of the Duke of Tsell, and George, the mumpish son of the electress, who might, par impossible, have some day to go over and reign in Great Britain. So old Sophia, while despising young Sophia's mother, the Frenchwoman, schemed to get the daughter's dowry for her son, and the poor little girl was brought from cellar, where a certain decency reigned, and pitchforked into the electoral court of Hanover, where she promptly went wrong. But her dowry was secured, and she now might be committed for any simple crime, tried by court-martial and whistled off, as indeed she was. Königsmark was a pretext. He was the usual adventurer, but the flighty woman loved him, and I think he loved her. I do not fancy that she was really at all interesting. She was very big and white and black-haired, with rolling black eyes. It is easy to see from her letters that her French mother had formed her in her own image, and that in itself must have been an offence. She was too previous. She was resented as an early French fashion is sometimes resented in crassly suburban circles. She began by flirting outrageously with everybody, lying in bed all day, dancing all night, and crabbing the clothes of the ladies of the court, notoriously those of Countess Platten, her rival in her husband's affection and those of her father-in-law. She mocked her husband's mother, she mocked everybody and everything. She behaved like a naughty child, until the passion for Königsmark took hold of her and she became jealous and vapourish and tragic. She bolted once like any schoolgirl when they had all been too severe with her and went home to mother. But her husband, the elector, ordered her back, and her mother was afraid to keep her. She took post-horses and went back in a rage. I think I see her rushing full tilt past the in-law's palace of Herrenhausen, which is a short mile from Hanover, and on the way to the Leinerschloss, the royal palace, where she was bound to rejoin her peevish little husband. In Herrenhausen there sat the crusty old electress, waiting to be propitiated by the naughty daughter-in-law stopping to pay her respects. I see the little French fury enraged at her recall, putting her black head out of the carriage window 
and bidding the postilions drive straight on. I see all the expectant heads of the electress's household craning out of the windows as the daughter and Lord her escort were whirled past, and I hear the fateful pronouncement of the savage old woman, openly defied by the daughter of the little, quote, clot of dirt, so she styled the Duchess of Cellar, that the daughter of the French lady, who had got herself somehow or other into the family, should ever be Queen of England, her own darling dream of succession voided for her by her own death, was what the electress, known as, quote, the friend of the philosopher Leibniz, unquote, but a narrow-minded old woman all the same, set herself all along to prevent. The doom of Sophia Dorothea may have been sealed from this moment of defiance. Less than a year after, she was to be the uncrowned Queen of England, and reign merely over a sullen marsh. These family jealousies were, of course, not all. There is generally to be found a splendid adventurer at the back of these fair outcasts from royal Edens guarded by flaming swords. Three gentlemen of fortune were connected with the three ladies I have mentioned. Bergami, the wretched Italian chamberlain and supposed lover of Caroline of England, may be reckoned negligible, but Bothwell, Königsmark, and our lad Struensee, cunning doctor who became a minister, the, quote, blood-red ray in the spectrum, unquote, of the life of Caroline Matilda, a Stuart on her mother's side, and Sophia Dorothea's ancestress, these gentlemen were kindred spirits. They were nearly all of them, not so much in love with the queen that stooped, as anxious to use her favour for their own ends of ambition. There is no doubt that Bothwell found Mary Stuart a great drag on his domestic bliss. He much preferred his own wife, a Huntley, to the royal lady he was so busy exploiting. Of Count Struensee, too, the exposition, Caroline Matilda, was not much more than a political pawn. Out of all the three, Philip, Count Königsmark, was the most ardent, the most reckless, the least calculating. For though we have naturally Mary Stuart's dead giveaway, the famous casket letters, which I for my part believe to be genuine, where are the letters of Bothwell to Mary? Was not the astute borderer too cautious to write letters? And did he not plead the rough, unskilled hand of a man of the Mosshags? But Königsmark's letters to Sophia Dorothea are extant, each one a hanging matter. And hers to him were found by the late Mr. W. H. Wilkins in the University Library of Lund in Sweden. He translated them. These letters breathe, hers and his, a savage and tender passion that is incontestably genuine, love marred by temper, vanity and sensuality, but still love, that rises sometimes to wild heights of selflessness. They amply prove the point, which is usual in these cases, some Sophia laters are found to contest. Here would our superior moralist Thackeray says about it, quote, Innocent! 
I remember as a boy how a great party persisted in declaring Caroline of Brunswick was a martyred angel. So was Helen of Greece innocent. She never ran away with Paris, the dangerous young Trojan. Men allows her husband ill-used her, and there was never any siege of Troy at all. So was Bluebeard's wife innocent. She never peeped into the closet where the other wives were with their heads cut off. She never dropped the key or stained it with blood. And her brothers were quite right in finishing Bluebeard. Yes, Caroline of Brunswick was innocent. And Madame Lafarge never poisoned her husband. And Mary of Scotland never blew up hers. And poor Sophia Dorothea was never unfaithful and Eve never took the apple. It was all a cowardly fabrication of the serpents. Unquote. It is all very amusing, but surely the ironic method was never so laid on with a trowel before. Thackeray was shocked. He was very early Victorian, and so that was easily done. Sophia Dorothea was very different from Amelia, and her home life at Cellar and Hanover was not at all like Amelia's in Russell Square. Thackeray shouts praise grudgingly of his German heroine, quote, How madly true the woman is, and how astoundingly she lies, unquote. Amelia was true, but soberly, and never, as children would say, lied big. She was not a tragic heroine at all, except perhaps for one moment at Waterloo, and yet we see, as we are able to do with tragic heroines whose letters get published, how petty are the causes leading to the difficulties which broaden out to such issues of life and death. Sophia Dorothea worried, bullied, nagged, and practically hunted her man to his doom. It is fairly obvious in such corrupt entourage as hers, and she saw it too, when not blinded by jealous fury, that if she had allowed Mark to be civil in the then-received manner to her father-in-law's ugly, all-powerful mistress and favourite, Countess von Platten, the Count would have lived to run away with her to France or England, or even to the enlightened court of Waltenbüttel. Footnote. It was in a precisely similar way that Guillaume de Cabestain, the noble troubadour, was discovered by the husband of the princess he adored. He wrote various poems to her ladies in order to ward off suspicion, alleging to his mistress that these were the common and necessary politenesses of the day. She, however, insisted that he must address to her still more passionate poems, and one stanza in the famous verses beginning Les Ducossirs betrayed the troubadour to the husband, who cut out his heart and made the lady drink his blood. J. L. F. M. H. End footnote. Or even to the enlightened court of Boltenbüttel, Duke Antony of Ulrich, the enemy of Hanover, lived there, the dissipated, dilettante relation who afterwards cast his niece's adventures in the form of a romance and passed it round to all the courts of Europe, who were deeply interested. Evasion was their plan, frustrated by the follies of both. It was more or less arranged between them, and it was a plan 
that had recommended itself to the worldly hard-headed adventurer that he should accept some of the countess platten's frequent invitations to supper the public ones where each man took his lady to dine at some cabaret en vie for all the world as people make up to go to some low restaurant nowadays and the private ones as well in la patten's castle behind the mill unquote, to supper Königsmark was a success at these parties except when the electoral princess of hanover had scolded him then he undid his work refusing to sit down to the collation walking about the room singing or throwing himself down among the new-mown hay in the garden and not saying a word till it was time to go he was the handsomest man in europe and europe spoilt him sophia dorothea had written to him what go to la platten's supper-party two hours after i had gone and when you had bidden me so tender a farewell you had no end of pretexts for declining that supper-party and yet you went i tremble for the future unquote. and well she might and this after another letter which runs quote, don't be so silly as to keep away from la platten altogether it is most important to keep her in a good humour therefore for the sake of our love go there as before unquote. Königsmark, to please her insists on forswearing the countess and she writes again to rebuke him for his submission to her orders quote, i am sorry that you no longer go to countess platten's it is rather important that you should go unquote. don't think of inducing me to return to la platten Königsmark replies you will not catch me that way any more and further to pacify the jealous lady he adds the detail of the platten's quote, ridiculous yellow cloak unquote. the silly princess jumps at it quick comes her reply she is quote, his all his for her mother-in-law the electress has corroborated his strictures on the cloak telling sophia's mother quote, that nothing could be more hideous Unquote, than the said cloak the magic of the spiteful innuendo does not last Königsmark gives a party and omits to mention the fact that he has invited la platten to it Quote, so the whole thing was got up for her Unquote, is the conclusion sophia dorothea jumps to and very meanly throws a potential rival in his face fortune she says to give me revenge has sent hither to-day a young baron from mayence unquote. how truly tragic it is the useful young baron from mayence la platten's yellow cloak Königsmark sulking among the haycocks to placate his beloved in the face of the dangers the two were running a lazy idle court full of spies drink and gambling sensuality run riot how could a fairly pure passion be allowed to subsist for it is obvious as even thackeray admits that these two were passionately attached and that the princess was devoted to quote, 
Lothario. One knew that Thackeray would have nothing better to do than call him Lothario. He writes humbly and pathetically as to the social event which has upset Sophia Dorothea so much. Quote, My banquet, as you call it, was a very dull affair. La Platten came with her husband. Unquote. And he tells the exigeant beauty once for all what his social philosophy is. It is quite in order for the present day. So might a modern Belgravian called to account by his great friend try to get into her obstinate head the cutlet for cutlet theory. Quote, My reason for giving the supper party was because I am going away so soon. Note to the wars, not to the moors. And it was the right thing to do. I have been so often to their dinners that it was necessary for me to make some return. Do not think I did it to court anyone or with any thought of intrigue. I vow on my perdition it was not so. As a man I am compelled to do many things that you as a woman need not do. Sometimes we must worship the devil, lest he should harm us." Unquote. It must be admitted that Königsmark went a very long way with the devil. That sinister castle behind the mill, deep embowered in trees, secluded, dark, where the jolly countess entertained her favourites. To damn me, says poor Königsmark, she asked me to supper there. And he adds in self-deprecation, half sullen, half combative, since the lady herself had counselled the step, quote, it was a gross insult to my love for you, for which I mean to see you at my feet, begging my pardon. You cannot love me as much as I love you, for at your bidding I have sinned against my love for you. Unquote. Yes, it was high policy to dignify by that name a low form of courtier-like trimmings, higher than the egotistic princess could stand although she had cynically counselled it. And the doomed Königsmark comes to see clearly how she is likely to react. He, moreover, sincerely loathes himself for his paltering with the evil one. He ends by vowing first on his perdition, then on his salvation, that he will see the Countess no more, be the consequences what they may. Quote, I will never see her again, though it ruin me. Unquote. It did ruin him. If he had even stuck to that bold attitude, he announced, it might have availed him somewhat. But he continued to kowtow to the favourite in a faint-hearted way, and the favourite, preserving her weakness for him, held her hand for a space. At last the princess committing herself to her mad passion before the eyes of the whole court, contrived so to rub in the fact of his infidelity to La Platten. Yes, it had all the while looked like that to the Countess, who, considering herself sure of his heart, had doubtless winked at and permitted a courtier-like adoration of the electoral princess as the proper attitude of an adventurer, that she, at last, decided to destroy him fresh from the arms of her rival. At least, that is the story. 
No one really knows how it went that summer night in June, after which Königsmark was not seen again. But this is how tradition says she managed it. Four clumsy halberdiers, lent to La Platten by the sleepy old elector, her lover, whom she disturbed with a scandalous tale of his captain of the guard alone with his imprudent daughter-in-law, at the dead hour of night these men were to arrest Königsmark to take him dead or alive, they took him dead. An ambush behind the great convenient stove in the Rittersaal, through which the happy lover must pass on his way out, a blow in the back, a lighted torch held up, and the most beautiful face in the world, everybody grants him that, spoilt, trodden under an angry, revengeful woman's heel. Then a flag taken up, some quick lime, and all quiet when day dawned. And Sophia Dorothea left with his parting kisses on her lips, among her torn-up compromising papers, some of them only torn across, or we should have no data, and her jewel caskets and other preparations for tomorrow's flight, probably lay down to snatch a few moments' sleep, expecting to be roused next morning early by that little note from her lover that was to be the signal for her departure, the note that never came. Knesebeck, la confidante, heard sounds in the night but thought nothing of them. It was a fortnight before Sophia Dorothea kept a prisoner in her wing of the old Leinerschloss, knew that her lover was lost, and not then officially. Everybody all over Europe, led by his sister, the amiable adventurous Aurora von Königsmark, was hunting for the elector's handsome colonel of the guards. But a sardonic remark of that potentate's reported to her must have left her with small doubt. It was to the effect that Königsmark was not likely to appear again in Hanover. However, Sophia Dorothea was kept shut up. Her children were not allowed to see her. She knew nothing of the robust Aurora's hearty search for her brother. Such refinements of cruelty were permissible in these vicious little circles. The amenities of small ducal courts must have been very like those of neighbouring tribes of savages, and the constant haggling over Sophia Dorothea and her money, at the time of her marriage and at the time of her divorce, might be fairly translated by the rites of marriage by capture, the raids of braves, and the exchanging of cows and women in Zululand. In the princess's despair, she threw the cup after the platter, as the saying is, and played into her cunning husband's hands. He wanted to get rid of her and keep her money. He did not want to mention the Königsmark affair, it was repugnant to his pride, and if the princess could be strengthened in her expressed determination not to return to her husband, then she could be easily put away for desertion according to the German law. The name of Königsmark was skilfully kept out of it. The confidant was made the scapegoat and imprisoned. It was Frau von Knesebeck's counsels which had corrupted the princess, who was sent into exile at Lahnau, quote, 
until such time as she returns to her duties with the electoral prince, unquote. A farce. He wanted none of her duties. He had the Maypole and the Maypole's child. The divorce proceedings that were then inaugurated were a farce, as divorce proceedings so often are. The cellar people, represented by her indefatigable mother, the Duchess Eleonore, wanted a separation. The Hanoverians, that is to say her husband, a divorce. The ill-advised princess readily gave him his wish. She believed that freedom would follow the pronouncing of the divorce. So she duly showed a rebellious spirit, contumacia, and declared freely to the commissioners that nothing would induce her to return to her electoral consort. Later, like Mary Stuart, Sophia Dorothea intrigued constantly for freedom, but attempts to escape, conducted by letter, were not a hanging matter, and besides, all her friends turned out to be in the pay of her enemies, except the plucky Knesebeck, who escaped from prison and worked hard for her mistress. I should like to have known Knesebeck. She stood up so gallantly for the theory of the princess's innocence, and whether that theory was tenable or not, it was right and fitting for La Confidante to hold it. Another person held the theory and supported it in a book. But then, as the shrewd old Duchess of Orléans observed, quote, it was only to save the honour of the house, unquote. This was a relation, the literary duke, Antony Ulrich of Wolfenbüttel. His novel was called Octavia. It was that exceedingly modern performance Roman à clé. Sophia Dorothea figures as the Princess Solane. Her husband, George Louis, is romantically disguised as Prince Cotis. Königsmark is Aquilius. This official account of a world-renowned family incident was read eagerly by every court in Europe. The Duchess of Orléans, like any gossiping, idle old lady of our day, anxious to be amused in her twilight of life, she was a great stirabout in her time, writes to, yes, actually, the Electress Sophia, the mother of Cotis and mother-in-law of Salon, saying, I'm going to read the Octavia over again, as George Louis, yes, actually, George Louis himself, has been good enough to send me the key to it. The cynicism of this would have delighted Thackeray. Duke Ulrich makes Solan appear innocent, she adds, unkindly suggesting the obvious family reason for his backing. She is diplomatic about George Louis, as she is writing to the youth's mother. Cotis, she observes, Cotis I consider cold, not brutal. Not brutal. And while she wrote, perhaps the uncrowned queen was driving furiously down the road to the bridge at Hayden with her escort of drawn swords and black despair in her heart. And then the Duchess has another dig at the victim of the coldness of Prince Cody's quote. Duke Christian looks on it as an improvement that she stuck to one in particular, unquote. 
now the good duchess herself admits to finding safety in numbers she is moreover curious as to whether george louis who so obligingly furnishes the key to the urgent family document has any hankering to see his wife quote, who is still beautiful yes sophia dorothea is fifty and she is still beautiful and if when he succeeded to the throne of great britain george louis could have taken her with him as his consort it would have helped to popularize the hanoverian regime but no one ever said he wasn't shrewd and he knew the sort of woman he had to deal with he knew sophia dorothea her bitter french tongue her german obstinacy and he thought it safer to give out that he was a widower or if he had a wife that she was mad he made both excuses apparently the jacobites would peck at him either way at the same time he had the queen guarded even more closely than before as closely as he dared without at the same time injuring her health he had a purely selfish reason for this a fortune teller had assured him that he would not survive her six months prince coty's valued life and when Sophia Dorothea died, she raved, she denounced her husband, and she wrote, the story says, a letter to be delivered after her death. It was delivered nine months after to the king when he landed on his biennial visit to Hanover. It gave him the stroke from which he did not recover. It is almost too dramatic to be true. It is difficult to believe that an omen could be so fully justified. But dates do not lie. No, not if you get them right, which I always find difficulty in doing. End of section 18